0: Hello listeners, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Hall is joined by TJ Demos, professor in the Department of the History of Art and Visual Culture at University of California, Santa Cruz, and director of its Center for Creative Ecologies. Together, they chat about TJ's book, Radical Futurism's Ecologies of Collapse, Chronopolitics, and Justice to Come. They also discuss the question of climate justice and visual culture and fossil fascism. Enjoy the episode.
1: Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again. Uh, This week, we have a special guest. TJ Demos is joining us. Welcome, TJ.
2: Hey, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, TJ, I'm wondering if we can begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit.
2: Sure. Um, I'm a professor uh, within the Department of Art History and Visual Culture at the University of California, Santa Cruz, on land that has been long claimed by the uh, Ohlone people, the Awaswa-speaking Ohlone people, whose descendants, the Amamuts are currently struggling for sovereignty and uh, and land back and against extractive projects in the area. Um, my training is in art history, and I also have brought a strong political focus to my work. So I'll also uh, have some background as an activist and organizer, specifically with uh, DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. So in some ways, you know, my, my practice is multifaceted. It's uh, as a teacher, a professor, a researcher, but also as someone who engages in politics on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm. So TJ, as, a, as an art historian, cultural critic, political organizer, um, when did you first uh, start thinking and writing about ecology?
2: That was around 2007 or eight, and I was uh, living in London at the time. I, I lived and worked there for ten years uh, between 2005 and 15, and I was, um, you know, like many people, becoming increasingly aware of the um, climate crisis that was developing in all sorts of ways. I had moved to London soon after Hurricane Katrina had happened in New Orleans, um, and. As many of us know who follow that, this was a, a major environmental disaster that also had strong social and political and, and racial components to it in terms of how it unfolded, specifically and particularly in relationship to the African-American community that was hugely impacted by the hurricane at the time. So I was you know, thinking about this um, without it being a focus of my research for a while when I was invited to um, write something about it for an exhibition that was happening in London at the Barbican Gallery. And that became uh, the essay that I wrote on the politics of sustainability in relation to art and ecology, um, where I you know, was interested in seizing that opportunity and, and thinking about this term sustainability, which was, in my perspective, subject to all manner of greenwashing. Uh, where sustainability ultimately meant what I found in my research, economic sustainability more than anything else. For instance, ecological sustainability. So that that was really the beginning of what became a long-term and ongoing research project for me, um, an engagement with political ecology and thinking about how to push back ultimately on what I would call maybe like liberal green ecology and the dominance of green capitalism uh, that we're still uh, struggling with these days.
1: Yeah. So, uh, wondering if you can um, start with the, the decolonizing nature, contemporary art, and the politics of ecology, and uh, a little bit about the background and the project and what you were thinking through at the time.
2: Decolonizing nature came out of that essay, The Politics of Sustainability, in in some ways, and there's a revised version of of that essay in the book. Um, but I, you know, in that essay, I trace, I offer a genealogy of this term, um, and how it's developed and changed over the last few decades, both in ways that are conservative and liberal in their conceptual and practical frameworks, and also, uh, ways that they've been radicalized in artistic and activist practices. And I wanted to develop that more. And I did so in that book in part by grappling with other aspects of um, the environmental and climate crisis in terms of, for instance, relating it to the larger project of capitalism and its um, blowback ecologically, as well as connecting it to different kinds of conflicts and contradictions within society and politics more broadly. For instance, uh, migration or climate refugee conditions extractivism within different areas from India to Latin America and um, and other ways of conceiving of ecology within uh, emerging discursive practices, uh, specifically within new materialism and speculative realism, these sorts of developments, which I wanted to think about, again, putting some political pressure on these terms uh, to contest ultimately the formation, the growing formation of ecology within a green capitalist framework. So um, that was, you know, that was a big part of the book, as well as expanding beyond uh, the Euro-American focus of much environmentalism, especially as it entered into the contemporary art world. Or at least that was my perspective at the time. It was, you know, beginning, ecology was beginning to trend in many ways in contemporary art. It still is and was largely focused within the European context, uh, within particularly exhibitions, biennials, as con- you know, thematic focuses of major shows, and more broadly within curatorial projects, as well as in the States. But not much attention had been granted or given to developments uh, theoretically and also artistically and politically within areas outside of that context. So I was... Um, Decolonizing nature offered a, a container to, for me to, to, re- to do some research in different areas of the world and try to think about broader conditions of radicalizing ecology or decolonizing nature outside of that Euro-American context.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you talk about the kind of um, ecological discourses not landing down politically, socially, artistically, um, sometimes it really resonates with me when I was doing my doctoral work, I was trying to bring Badu's work into uh, ecology and I was reading, you know, I've got on my shelf all these sort of uh, environmental ethics textbooks and stuff that was all about the individual and deciding to recycle or not and and, um, finding it really um, lacking in terms of a political sensibility or an outside, and um, I think maybe particularly in the world of, of visual arts, there was kind of a desire of an outside that was a space that maybe allowed for circulation there that resonated with people. Yeah, and I'm wondering in your project, the Against the Anthropocene, of course, we see this word uh, being thrown around uh, a lot of critique of that term as well, but you did a, a frontal <laughs> critique of it as well. And and wondering if you can speak about um, that project where you, you take a critical lens to the framing around the ecological crisis and you know how areas are being articulated and projects are being built um, out of that. And also how uh, the field of visual culture and art um, takes these questions on.
2: Yeah, the Anthropocene thesis was another node of trending ecological discourse in the teens and earlier, but especially the way it was taken up within the cultural sector and, and the arts. During those years in the early teens, um, and Latour was indeed part of this. I I felt like that was, you know, part of the motivation behind the book, which I thought of as the time as a kind of almost like a manifesto. I wanted to write something that was short, that was polemical, that made a a strong or attempted to make a strong political intervention within the way that this terminological, geological conception was unfolding. The problems that, that I had with it were that. Uh, The Anthropocene read to me as a kind of neo-universalist discourse in the sense that it presumed that this was happening because of so-called human activities uh, and it was happening everywhere. And the way that that got articulated was to basically erase causal differentiation, the fact that some people, uh, some nation states were much more culpable and responsible for the causality behind climate disaster than others. And it tended to disavow the unevenness of impacts, right? That the Anthropocene or the the kinds of climate transformations that the Anthropocene inaugurates uh, really affect people in different places in very different ways, in ways that really depend on what kind of resources and economies and political conditions people are living within and have access to. So, you know, by now it's, it's pretty clear within political ecology and climate justice discussions that it's, you know, it's understood that climate disaster generally tends to affect the most vulnerable in, in ways that are the harshest, precisely because they have the least access to resources. It's what someone like Mike Davis would call an unnatural disaster. When something like Katrina unfolds, it's going to impact some people much more than others, depending on the convergence of race, class, and other social factors. So the Anthropocene, as a thesis, tended to disregard all of that in ways that I found really um, objectionable. And I wanted to offer a corrective or um, at least intervene and put some things on the table that would challenge some of these ideas, including the notion that if the Anthropocene provides an analysis of the problem, it also preempts certain approaches to solving it. And I found this also in the logic of the Anthropocene, that it specifically, in the way that it describes the problem, ends up calling for and opening up the possibility for specifically technoscientific solutions, specifically geoengineering and carbon capture. In other words, more green capitalism, which connects broadly to the the argument of disaster capitalism, of, of Naomi Klein and others, Uh, that this was kind of the perversity of of climate breakdown, that even as it's happening, even as it's caused by capitalism, capitalism is setting up the conditions to profit from that disaster um, and worsen it in many ways. So I was attempting to, in this book, intervene in that logic and challenge it, as well as some of the figures at the time that seemed to be or were actually connected to these developments, like Latour, uh, who, for some time, actually supported the work of, for instance, the Breakthrough Institute. This is an eco-modernist think tank in uh, California in the Bay Area that has long supported technological interventions as the prioritized ways of approaching climate disasters. So they've supported geoengineering, with which Latour uh, ultimately also uh, supported, with some complex arguments, but. I found, as is often the case with Latour, there's a a disavowal of of, really concrete political challenges um, in his theorizations. For me also, the Anthropocene possessed an aesthetic uh, element in the way that uh, visual practitioners, including artists but not only artists, were using it as as a lens to configure visuality, often through the use of satellite imagery, new technologies of visuality that produced this this view from nowhere that would look at the earth and analyze conditions of transforming environments this is what for instance don Haraway, who's a colleague of mine calls the god trick that this production of a view from nowhere uh, which has no situated basis in social conditions or political reality so that was being mobilized to support the problematic ideological assumptions of the anthropocene thesis and you see this in, in the work of like photographers like uh, Edward Bertinsky and others that I ended up discussing in that book in order to challenge uh, the aestheticization of the Anthropocene as something that ultimately affirms human narcissism at the level of species being through visuality. Uh, so that was a, a, something that I wanted to contend with. At the same time, trying to contribute argumentation for the support of alternative terms Like, for instance, the racial capitalist scene, which I find is much more politically enabling. It names the causality behind uh, climate breakdown really clearly, and it opens up political options in terms of how we address it in ways that don't artificially divide climate science from social science, but actually insists on thinking the two together uh, through, for instance, political ecology. So I'm I'm thinking about this term, uh, racial capital scene. Lots of people have written about elements of this term from Jason Moore to Francoise Vergesse. but I think that that's really a useful corrective to the Anthropocene thesis, even though I acknowledge at the same time, like the Anthropocene is not going away. This is going to be the term of choice that's broadly used. Uh, But more recently, I've been interested in ways that the Anthropocene thesis is being mobilized within a critical framework, for instance, I've been reading this, uh, the book of uh, Kohe Seto, Marx and the Anthropocene, towards an idea of degrowth communism, which I find really compelling and mobilizing the term Anthropocene critically within an anti capitalist framework in support of eco socialism, or, or rather what he uh, ultimately argues for, which is degrowth communism.
1: Yeah, it, it seems that uh, some writers like Amitav Ghosh, um, some of his ideas align very strongly with that, even though he doesn't use the term um, himself. In your book, uh, Beyond the World's End, you you again tie together artistic and activist responses to existential environmental questions at stake. And near the, the beginning of the book, you're right, we're entering the end game, the terminal Point of democracy, of liberalism, of capitalism, of the cool planet of the Anthropocene, of the end of the world as we know it—pretty um, bleak <laughs> setup, but, but but also correct in terms of the. And having just gone through once again another summer of intense wildfires throughout the province of BC just a few years ago, Lytton burned down, and I'm from small town BC. My parents had to evacuate in 2017, and there's a great book, Fire Weather, out right now with John Valiant, who's based here in Vancouver around the Fort McMurray fires, but all of the implications of what's happening today. And in our lifetime, things are going to get worse before they get better in many respects. And wondering if you can speak of building on, of course. And you also so you know, there's like these artistic and theoretical kind of movements like accelerationism that emerged, but it was almost like it was like a fad. It lasted like 18 months or 24 months, although it's still around. But um, yeah, I'm wondering if you can speak to this project beyond the, the world's end, which I have right in front of me.
2: Yeah. You know, contending with that, that experience, that sense of bleakness really is a, a uh, an important part of, of what drives my work, uh, as well as the commitment not to surrender to it. Uh, and that's no easy thing, as you're pointing out. Like I, I being based in Santa Cruz, we're in a um, a fire vulnerable area, um, and have have experienced wildfire risk and threats that have displaced people, led to deaths, um, all sorts of really awful stuff in in recent years. And and we know that will likely get worse in in the near future. So you know, like what that means, how to how to situate a confrontation with bleakness um without surrendering to fatalism and negativity catastrophism is, is uh that was part of the you know the motivation behind that book like let's let's talk about the world's end or the ending of multiple worlds um which is ultimately what I try to open up at the beginning of that book. Because the question, the quote that you read from, of course, um, it goes on to challenge some of the assumptions of some of those phrases. Specifically, uh, what I've learned is um, that climate anxiety is distinctly a kind of uh, often a liberal settler anxiety, which is largely attuned owing to climate science and mainstream media. Uh, to a near future climate disaster, so the apocalypse is all is in generally in front of us. It's something that we may be entering into, but it's in the future. Whereas we know from other communities, other research, other scholars, activists, practitioners that maybe the catastrophe is not in the future, but it has already occurred. And in the book, I cite, for instance, the work of the Anishinaabe scholar, Lawrence Gross, who argues that indigenous peoples have long struggled with what he calls post-apocalypse stress syndrome. Uh, In other words, that uh, we're effectively living in the aftermath of world-ending disaster, which is that of settler colonialism, which has ended the world effectively for indigenous people um, long ago, 500 years ago, or at least a cascade of multiple endings. Leaving multiple survivors as well, struggling against the continuity, the, the ongoingness of those ends as well. There's also the work of Black study scholars like Christina Sharp and her book, In the Wake on Blackness and Being, which examines the conditions of Black existence, again, in the wake uh, of a world ending disaster, in, in this case, racial slavery or, or uh, that world ending cataclysm. So um, ultimately, I, the book is an investigation of the cultural and experiential terms of what it means to live within the midst of these multiple apocalypses and how to, how to think about the ethical and political imperative to connect them. The indigenous scholar Zoe Todd argues for this as well, that we have to you know, not just register the existence of multiple endings of worlds, but actually do the work of... Thinking of connecting them, and that's that provided some provocation for the methodological basis of the book, where I try to do some of that work and, and think intersectionally between apocalypses in addressing artistic and aesthetic projects of people like John Confra and Arthur Jafa, Angela Melitopoulos, different practitioners that are actually mobilizing often film and video, but not just. In relationship to these, uh, the ongoingness of disaster, and what life is like in the wake, and, and what kinds of possibilities for struggle exist to reach um, potential points of uh, emancipation from all of this, I'm also looking at activists' uh, practices, like the Indigenous convergence against the Dakota Access Pipeline, for instance, figures in the book. And that was also part of the methodological basis of of attempting to place art and activism on a spectrum of political aesthetics instead of opposing them, as do many gatekeepers of contemporary art, Um, so as to ask ultimately the question, what comes after the world's end or the the endings of multiple worlds, Uh, which opens a discussion of uh, emancipatory futures that might Ultimately, surpassed the 500-year project of racial colonial capitalism. So that—that's really a big part of that book, and obviously sets up the conditions for my most recent project on radical futurisms.
1: Yeah, which I—I I just wanted to say, I really enjoyed reading. I thought it was really on point from uh, Sternberg uh, Press, radical futurisms, ecologies of collapse, chronopolitics, and the justice to come. And you lay out um, through visual culture and social justice movements, the the questions that come after the many end-of-world narratives we have um, before us. But wondering if you can maybe define or speak a little bit to, um, before we speak about the book, the term chronopolitics and what you mean by justice to come.
2: Sure. Um, Chronopolitics is a term that refers to the time Of politics right chronos it brings chronos and politics together so there's the time of politics as well as the politics of time and in terms of that what i'm referring to is you know the time of politics within dominant political experience is such that within representative or or so-called representative democracy within liberal capitalism we're called on to be political a few times every few years when it comes to, say, voting. That's the dominant experience. Many people even opt out of that. So, in other words, our relation to the political is strongly restricted according to this kind of temporal configuration. And chronopolitics then would challenge that uh, that limitation and insist on opening up the temporality of politics to, for instance the way we organize conditions of everyday life. It also challenges the politics of time, the way time has been increasingly dominated and defined by capitalism's calculative machinery. Like The way many experience this is through wage labor and clock time, uh, punching in and out of a clock, getting paid for that time, thinking of monetizing time, time as money, all of these kinds of dominant ways of thinking about temporality within the dominant economy is uh, what I'm trying to identify and challenge, again, in terms of calling attention to different ways of understanding temporality and thereby politicizing it so as to challenge that calculative machinery of capitalism. So one example is the the work of the Philadelphia-based Afrofuturist collective uh, called Black Quantum Futurism. Uh, They do a lot of work thinking about temporality uh, within their their practice, which is it's mixed media, it's music, it's sonic futurism, it's uh, oral future telling, it's community organizing, it's doing anti-gentrification work on the ground in areas of Philadelphia that have experienced a lot of discriminatory housing practices over the years. And they identify the imperative for them of escaping what they call the master's clockwork universe. In other words, the long history of racial capitalism and the way it's defined temporality that have affected Black lives in all sorts of ways, in terms of uh, projecting stereotypes onto them, delimiting experience, oppressing uh, labor conditions. And this is also similar to, in some ways, the way uh, Indigenous artists like the collective Superfutures Haunt Collective They're a Northwest-based collective uh, indigiqueer group of performance and mixed media artists who talk about the dispossessive chronology of colonialism uh, that projects indigenous communities into, um, for instance, an anthropological obsolescence, as if indigeneity is by definition of and in the past, not in the present, let alone the future. And there's just amazing resurgence of voices challenging these dominant views and these temporal constructions that are deeply oppressive and have been ongoing for a a long time. So chronopolitics then helps identify other times of liberation, of emancipation, like for instance, Black Quantum Futurism drawing on Afro-diasporic temporalities. Like they're researching uh, the Dogon of Mali in terms of and Afrocentric practice of temporality that, that is attuned to, to seasons of agriculture as well as cosmologies of uh, mythological time. They're also drawing on quantum field theory, which is really fascinating, which attempts to overcome Newtonian linear time in favor of new modes of temporal agency. Black quantum futurism likes to develop experimental practices of what they call retrocausality. The fact that uh, causality is not necessarily based within a linear projection of past that constructs the future, but actually the present, according to them, can intervene in the past um, and rewrite conditions of the future. They also talk about the superpositioning of events that quantum field theory opens up, like being in two places at once. And these these formations, these theoretical formations, enable new kinds of political Possibilities, which I'm trying to develop in terms of chronopolitics. Also, in going back to uh, ultimately the work of Walter Benjamin, who figures, you know, somewhat prominently in certain chapters of the book. And he was, of course, he talked about the imperative of developing an anti-fascist historiography. He was theorizing shortly before his death, in the face of uh, German Nazism, the necessity of rejecting fascism's tendency to project historical inevitability as if it was the ineluctable result of progressive development instead of being the genocidal anti-modern regression that it actually was. So this is, I think, you know, really um, important to think about historically. And it is also unfortunately becoming increasingly relevant in terms of the present, in terms of you know, what's happening these days in relation to the resurgence of fascisms today. So ultimately, chronopolitics is one way to try to politicize time in order to intervene in that, in this uh, current emergency politics that is leading to, to fascism.
1: I'm wondering, uh, TJ, if you could speak a little bit to in discussions around environment and, and climate change. Uh, there also seems to be a, a trend around fascist or authoritarian kind of uh, views, uh, the language of blood and soil that uh, reaps into the more right-wing forms of environmental movement or discussions around climate change or something that gets distorted into uh, a form of authoritarian populism that seems to tie into a kind of green or environmental uh, agenda, which is, of course, troubling, but Uh, Certainly, we see it in in France with Marine Le Pen. You see it uh, to some degree in Italy, but other examples as well. I'm wondering if you can speak to kind of that aspect of the environmental movement or climate discourses that that take a kind of reactionary tone.
2: Absolutely. It's it's a real growing problem and, and challenge politically today that we need to continue to think about. Uh, I recently read the book by Andreas Malm and the Zedkin Collective uh, called White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism, which offers, a, I thought, a really good overview, uh, especially of European varieties, uh, with some attention to the, to the states as well. Of this conjugation of international white supremacy with petrocapitalism that expresses itself in relationship to a, a strong xenophobic and anti-migrant politics. Which spells out the danger of fossil fascism for them. in the in the American context, this would refer to Trump's like pro-fossil fuel ethno-nationalism as a exemplary crystallization of of this project uh, that has deep roots and indeed goes back to the history of early twentieth century fascisms. so I'm you know, I think this is important to follow, especially within thinking about environmental politics these days. And I think it, it's there's something here that is you know that connects fossil fascism to liberal green capitalism. Ultimately, I mean, these are not opposed so much; rather, green capitalism tends to share the same economic interests as fossil fascism, even if they're not the, exactly the same social ones. But when the dominant economic system increasingly cannibalizes the political system, and here I'm thinking about the work of Nancy Fraser and her Recent book, Cannibal Capitalism. Uh, The end result, not surprisingly, is a kind of authoritarianism that can't seem to help relying on these tried and true tactics of social division, uh, meaning in this case structural racism, in order to disempower any and all opposition. And that seems to be an accurate analysis of where we are these days, where just the extractivism of the dominant economic system has cannibalize the political possibilities of resistance to it, and, and the result of that is increasingly extreme forms of authoritarianism, even you know increased articulation of the dreams of capitalism without democracy, that we're seeing in all sorts of places that is uh, leading also to increased violence of a militarized police state to shut down opposition. To the conditions of this uh, this anti ecological, political economic death drive toward planetary disaster. So you know how can we analyze these conditions and organize against it? One area that I'm thinking about these days and connects in some ways to radical futurisms, which addresses one possible area, one um, important area of divisiveness, which relates to identity politics, for instance. Another one is you know, the, the divisive binary between jobs versus the environment, which we hear so much about. That's a major obstacle to, to a climate justice organizing um, that would bring, that would insist on bringing labor and ecology together in order to form a majoritarian anti-capitalist opposition. And so that's something that I'm thinking about. Others are posing the the stakes of that struggle, like Matt Huber's recent book, Climate Change is Class Struggle. Ultimately, this is, you know, this is shaping up to be the major one, you know, a major site of uh, of struggle today against eco-fascism ultimately.
1: Uh, yeah. Matt Huber I ran into him in Banff a number of years ago. Um, the Banff research and culture that Emre Zeman used to put together. And uh, it's got strong links, I think, with Jeff Mann, who teaches in SFU's geography department. a question around, we, just last week, we interviewed Travis Holloway, who has a really great book out on uh, called How to Live at the End of the World. And also found you know, a nice link with your work talking about futurity and multi-species uh, flourishing. And also, uh, interestingly, um, both in your work and Travis's work, uh, these themes of friendship and community come up in the context of ecological questions. And I'm working on a book with my collaborator, Matt Hearn, around friendship and community in light of waves of authoritarian populism, but also inside of the larger existential ecological question today. And so that part of your most recent book resonated with me as it towards the, the, the end of it, those themes seem to be being picked up by a, a number of people in, in different contexts. So I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that notion of multi-species flourishing, what radical democracy might look like beyond the human. How do we rethink these notions of uh, friendship and community beyond you know, Jean-Luc Nancy and, and other people is that we have to kind of, um, how do we think about the ecological or how do we Make those philosophical questions new in the context, the ecological context that we're in today.
2: In the book, I opt for the term uh, comradeship rather than uh, friendship or community, even though I think those ter- there's some overlap with those terms. But I'm I'm moved to think about comradeship uh, in relationship to the recent work of Jody Dean and to the need for thinking about more specifically political forms of relationality. Um, Not that friendship and community couldn't also be discussed in this way, but my entry point was through comradeship. Maybe it's because it's also a term that's used frequently and commonly within socialist organizing contexts, including within uh, DSA. And I wanted to think more about this, this term of Political solidarity as well. Um, solidarity being a, a concept that really is in many ways alien to artistic practices and uh, art world systems, because, of course, um, within the art context that's been so thoroughly commercialized and institutionalized over the last century or so, the the system is just ruled by competitive individualism, as in you know th- that's policed and managed in all sorts of ways. So how, you know, how can we think about solidarity, which, of course, is a really strong concept um, that binds a lot of organizing practices within the political sphere. But insofar as some of us want to bring artistic practices and activist or political engagements together, often solidarity is something that doesn't really translate so easily. So, um, this is something I wanted to to discuss and set up, and again, to try to theorize the possibilities of and ultimately, I would argue the necessity of uh, multiracial forms of solidarity across difference, and that means contending with the divisiveness of identity politics, where I found the work of people like Assad Haider, especially his book um, Mistaken Identity yeah
1: he's been a guest on um, our show. <laughs>
2: All right, great. He's also uh, did his PhD at UCSD here in Santa Cruz, um, and worked with Max Tomba, who's in the History of Consciousness program, and wrote a, um, an important book called Insurgent Universality, which Assad draws on, and I end up drawing on as well, because I find it really enabling in terms of theorizing conditions of a universality that is not the same as the dangerous um, universalism that, that hides a hidden often you know, European white particularity within it. So how can we rethink in certain universality and, and along with it, the conditions of solidarity at the same time? So that becomes a really important element. And that's something I extend then to uh, beyond the human toward the prospect of what some people would call multi-species justice or multi-species flourishing which I too want to think about and, and have done some work on, um, including beyond this recent book, Radical Futurisms. I recently wrote an essay for a Spanish uh, publication that addressed the topic of extinction, extinction and the visual culture that, that, that goes along with it, where I compared some of the work of like liberal photojournalism and conservation, such as the photographer Joel Sartori who's done these images of at-risk species that are like portraits of animals that are at risk that try to mobilize compassion that can then catalyze politicization in order to challenge the extinction crisis, but remains, at least according to my reading, very much within a liberal framework of uh, generating guilt, demanding compassion, but not really offering any concrete steps to how to challenge the ultimate elephant in the room, which is, you know, the dominant economic system that's not only it's providing the conditions of the mass species extinction crisis that we're living through right now, but also is the very system that this photographer, Joel Sartori, is relying on to fund his practice. So, it, you know, liberalism is filled with all these contradictions. Against this, I posed the, the work of the Dutch artist Jonas Stahl and the British academic Rada D'Souza, and their project called The Court for Intergenerational Climate Crimes, which was a, like a multi-day public tribunal that placed extractive and fossil capitalists, corporations, and states on trial for driving climate breakdown and the extinction crisis. And within this, this context, they referred to, to extinct animals, as comrades, and they, part of the set design for this project was these um, signs that were uh, held up with images of, of different animals that have gone extinct with the word comrade in different languages written on them. So it's, it, that's just a small part of this testimony-driven project that, w- that was used in the language of political solidarity across species, which I found really uh, provocative and compelling in terms of offering an opportunity to think about these kinds of speculative possibilities of theorizing relationality according to this political form of solidarity. What does it mean to have solidarity with extinct species? Um, So I deal with that in the essay and ultimately come around to suggesting that maybe we should, could be thinking about extinction as a form of a strike as a a labor withdrawal from world systems uh, against this deadly exploitation and environmental destruction. And this is a kind of um, proposal that I have because ultimately, you know, the idea of multi-species flourishing is more of a climate justice demand than uh, an accurate reading of current circumstances. Really we're headed in exactly the opposite direction of multi-species flourishing, or we're headed toward multi-species extinction. So if we rethink extinction as a strike, that may risk a kind of anthropomorphism, in other words, turning animals into striking workers. But that itself may work against a larger anthropocentrism, which I'm interested in, uh, and points toward what I think is a necessary reconciliation of labor and environmentalism for an effective struggle for life. And, you know, the work of Jonas Stahl and Rado de Souza may not get us very far practically in relationship to that, but it's a small step, I think, that offers some really helpful speculative ways of rethinking conditions of comradeship in relationship to multi-species being and relationality. And, you know, this is something that art offers is, is these uh, areas of, of speculative fabulation that can enable, in the best case, modes of uh, political engagement.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly um, around what you were talking about earlier around solidarity, Astra Taylor is writing a lot around that. Uh, Brian Masumi continues to write and think about the the more than human, and uh, many others as well. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to you know projects either you have uh, that you're currently working on now, or that you hope to get to in the in the future. Uh, what are you thinking about today in terms of? Um, where your work is taking you?
2: Well, after writing a book like Radical Futurisms, which ultimately is, you know, is, is very hopeful, or maybe, you know, to invoke the term of, of Yarimar Bonilla, um, maybe it's, it's uh, pessimistically optimistic. There's, you know, I have a little bit of a sense that it's, it's too positive and i want to i want to keep thinking about and i think it's important to to do so to think about like what is if we if we can identify horizons of emancipation which for me would not would necessarily be an anti-capitalist horizon that that supersedes the conditions of racial and colonial capitalism what is what's keeping us from getting there obviously there's organizing challenges there's problems on the left there's all sorts of stuff but Ultimately, there are real oppressive forces that are preventing organization, that are preventing political transition, that's preventing the the real material challenging of the system of fossil capitalism, fossil fascism. So I'm I'm wanting to think about the conditions of the administration of racial colonial capitalism. Ultimately, this has to do with policing. Um, I was in Germany during the winter last year. And there were a couple of events that were unfolding at the time when I was there. Uh, One was the struggle in Germany against uh, the demolition of Lützerath in favor of of lignite coal mining. And there was a big uh, resistance movement to save Lützerath against this uh, extractive fossil fuel project. At the same time, there was mobilization against Cop City in the US, in Atlanta, Georgia, where environmentalists and social justice activists anti-racist abolitionists and indigenous communities were struggling against this formation of uh, a large scale police training center construction called Cop City this like 94 million and now it's even i think up to 130 or 140 million dollar project that will support the training of counterinsurgency policing that emerged after in some ways ironically uh, but not surprisingly after the Black Lives Matter manifestations of the last few years, which, according to the right, were the scenes of very violent resistance. So according to them, the answer, according to the right, the answer is not to defund the police. Rather, it's to train the police even more, which means you know, directing more and more resources toward policing. So this, this formation of Cop City The resistance is definitely inspiring and hugely important, but it also is, um, I think, deeply symptomatic of what's happening these days in relationship to fossil fascism. That is the conjuncture of police militarization, of counterinsurgency training, of racialized environmental injustice, of forest and ecological destruction, of using lawfare and the weaponization of terrorism, charges against nonviolent protesters, so I want to think about that. I'm looking into that and reading a lot about that, researching the conditions of cop city and also the policing strategies that are going along with this to think about ultimately like counterinsurgency, which is an important term that theorists like uh, Stuart Schrader in a recent book talks about as is, is something that precedes and constructs the insurgency that it wants to combat. So counterinsurgency comes first before the insurgency. It's something that anticipates insurgency and prepares for it and criminalizes it in advance. So this is, you know, something that is really I think disturbing but also important for organizers on on the left who are opposing these conditions might be thinking about, which is how to develop a kind of counter counterinsurgency how to, again, uh, anticipate the resistance to the mounting opposition to Cop City in a way that anticipates the counter-insurgency strategies of the state. So, I'm, um, you know, this is, in some ways, it connects to radical futurisms. Um, there's the theorist Jasper Puar, who talks about this term prehensive futurity, which means, you know, prehensive in terms of being able to grab things, so to grab the future is a way to describe uh, how states and military authoritarianism tends to construct the future that it wants to uh, guarantee in advance so that it can prepare for it and then be assured of profiting from it. It's a right-wing strategy. So I want to think, you know, this poses the challenge for those of us who want to challenge this, which is how to come up with a prehensive futurity on the left? Like what would a counter-counter insurgency be that would challenge the conditions that are developing within Cop City today? Where Cop City is just, you know, it's one instance of an arguably global set of phenomenon that's happening today, and, you know, what, again, what Malm and the Zetkin collected call fossil fascism. This is really the struggle for, um, for our world, for what the world can be and for the future. So that's, it's very early early days, um, but this is the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about and, and working
1: on right now. Mm-hmm. And Jasbir Puar just, uh, I think, very recently moved to Vancouver to take up a position at UBC. I haven't met Jasbir yet, but hopefully soon she'll be a guest on the show. <laughs> um, anything yeah, I, I heard that. That would, that would be great. Yeah, anything you'd like to add, to
2: you? Uh, Not, No, I, I think that pretty much covers it. We've talked about a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar.
2: Thanks again for having me.
0: Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with TJ Demos. You can learn more about his book, Radical Futurisms, and some of his other works in the show notes below. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can donate at the link in the description below. Your generous donation will help support the podcast's activities and associate public events with SFU's City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.